All right, so let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless the discussion of the church covenant, help us to uh, consider these things, see if they are so, to search the scriptures and and to judge this uh, this doctrine and to see if it is so. But also I ask that you would help us to grow in the unity of the truth, that you would help us to be able to be covenanted brethren and to seek to honor you and glorify you and to be able to work in a covenanted uniformity. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the church covenant, we're going to look at number 10 today, the last one, the last vow. Do you promise to carefully examine the doctrine, worship, and government of this church according to Scripture alone to determine whether these marks of the church are being kept pure and entire, to submit unto the government of this church in all lawful exercises of church authority, and to refuse submission unto all unlawful exercises of church authority, to follow the biblical requirements of conflict resolution prior to separation from this body, as summarized authoritatively in Matthew 18 and Acts 15, and subordinately in the constitution of the scripturalist church, and to work in the church with zeal and knowledge for peace, purity, and unity in the truth. All right, so let's walk through that. So do you promise to carefully examine the doctrine, worship, and government of this church according to Scripture alone? So doctrine, what is taught, worship, the way that uh, you know, the elements of worship and the circumstances that we apply to them, and the government of this church, the elements of the government and the circumstances of it. So the the doctrine of the church ought to be only what is taught in Scripture, all of the explicit statements and necessary inferences. So I should remind you of vow one. Um, if something is taught that cannot be proven, then it either needs to be expressly pointed out as being opinion, like, for example, when I referenced Liddell Hart's book, I mentioned that it was not the Bible or not some expositing of the doctrine of the Bible, but I mentioned that he was talking about something that overlapped and so I was trying to say this is the scripture doctrine and here's a kind of evidence about this or an illustration so to speak that's not an authority of knowledge Um, so the idea that there's a difference between the things that are authoritative to govern thought versus the things that are um, uh, that are used to help to give illustration Um, and then with the worship the elements that God appoints in worship are the things that we are to use these to commune with God. And the circumstances are things that are by the nature of human action or the nature of societies required to be determined. So um, human action. You have got to be someplace you have got to be there at some time. You have got to have some posture because you're a human with a body, right? So when we gather, where should it be? When should it be? And what posture should you have? Okay, so the where is something that in the Old Testament, there was an, an element. The element was at the temple or at the tabernacle where a certain worship was to be done. Uh, now, the element actually is everywhere, because the church is supposed to fill the earth. And so your particular presence is a circumstance, which part of the earth? Um, you have to be somewhere. You're not God. So you have a location. And where is going to be determined based upon where you live and the other people in your assembly live, and you're going to pick a rational cho- choice of where to meet based upon the various types of costs. Okay, so um, it would be sinful for us to call the public worship 100 miles away without any good reason all of a sudden, right? So the, the, there's not a reason why the council should do that and just say, here's this burden where you've got to do this thing. You've got to appear here all of a sudden. And you go, well, why? Why are you adding 100 miles of travel each way for the public assembly without any good reason? And so 
I'm getting looks like I'm trying to target. I'm not trying to target anything. I was not, is this like actually a thing that happened? Like I'm, I'm not aware. I mean, so that was where the call to worship was. Okay. Well, I mean, so you can have some reason why if everybody, if people, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, yeah, uh, yeah. Sure. Okay. Okay, so anyway, so so that's yeah. I wasn't. I was trying to think about a, an example of something where you're creating. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, the shoe fits, I guess. <laughs> so, okay. So, the idea that the government, that the worship, uh, has to be someplace, and we have to pick a time, right? And so, you, know, you might argue that there's, you know, there was an element of the time that the public worship used to have to be at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. It was the third hour, so three hours after sunrise is historically 9 a.m., or you're looking at, you know, the ninth hour of the day was when the evening worship occurred in the temple, and so that would be 3 p.m., which is the, you know, the, the, the 12th hour of the day is 6 p.m., where the sun's supposed to go down, right? So, so this idea that there was a prescribed time uh, then, but that was a locality, there was a single locality, and so noon it would be very easy to determine uh, for that single locality to apply for everybody you're going by this temple time. Uh, I wonder if that's a time zone now. Anybody know? No, okay. So, so this idea of t- noon temple time uh, helps you to set the, the third hour and also the ninth hour of the day. So, uh, but now, I do not believe that that continues. I think we do have to have morning and evening. That's the general law as opposed to the specific times. And so that means we need one that's before noon and one that's afternoon, minimally. And so what time is going to be determined in part by the circumstances? Okay, how far do other people have to leave from? How, let's, what, what port, you know, do we have a lot of children? Is it easier to deal with it later in the morning or earlier in the morning? Okay, how about in the evening? We have to deal with the, the kind of the times of things that people have to deal with in the congregation. So it's a circumstance, and you're determining it based upon reasons uh, that have to do with some sorts of of costs, you have to pick a time. It's necessary by the nature of an assembly. So then you move into government, and with government, you're going to have the same sorts of issues. Oh, sorry, with worship. Sorry, one last one. So the the stance. So you go, okay, should we sit for the teaching or should we stand? Should we lie down? Right, what's what's the appropriate thing? The, the reclining at table during the Lord's Supper when it's initiated suggests that reclining is not forbidden in all of the acts of public worship. Okay, but there's also the example of standing for the reading of the word that's given in different places of scripture, okay? And so we have, we have sort of things that are appropriate to particular things. Teachers are allowed to stand to, t- to teach. They can sit to teach. I think reclining is probably not the appropriate stance. I don't think I could find any examples of that. So the idea that there are, there are things that are appropriate to particular types of worship activities and for the assembly broadly, um, some places there's multiple options, and other places uh, there seems to not be a specific limiting on which posture to take, and so you're going to make that based upon a choice of circumstance. Now, uh, circumstance is necessary to the nature of human action or the actions of societies. A circumstance is not musical instruments. A circumstance, musical instruments. Musical instruments are not. One of the main arguments for reform people trying to use musical instruments is they say, well, we have to sing, we have to have music, and so how we keep tune is a circumstance. And so it seems like the most rational thing to do is to have an orchestra to keep the tune, right? And that way our voices can follow along. That's the simplest, least troublesome, most easily helps us to keep the Sabbath if we just have an orchestra to help us to keep the tune. Um, And that's silly especially if you have anybody playing any instruments that keep them from singing. You know, anything that involves winds is going to stop that person from singing. So now they're either not participating in that worship activity of singing or they're dancing. Uh, sorry, that's not little ones dancing around. So, you know, Joshua, or Josiah, I know which my children's names are. No dancing, not a circumstance. Okay, so... The, um, the idea that there are 
things that are necessary to the nature of human action and society that have to be determined. So if you can avoid it, then you don't include it. Circumstances of worship are things that have to be decided on. And so all of a sudden, all the arguments for circumstances that are, that are like kind of broader, that are these big like inclusions of things, are going to be kind of just thrown away. They're going to be out of court. So um, when you get into government, the same thing applies. And so you'll have like, what are the offices established? What authorities do those offices have? What are the courts that are established? What authorities do those courts have? What are the means? And so due process is a part of that. It's a, it's a part of the elements of exercising uh, government. And so you're aware of the public controversy with Westminster Fellowship. I've issued a public letter saying if they don't exercise uh, choices uh, that relate to due process, that I'm going to ask the council to, um, uh, to acknowledge them as not having the mark of government. Because that's the basis of that claim is due process is one of the elements and denying the elements of government is a denial of the rule of Christ in the church. And so we, we deny his kingship there. And the exercising of government uh, tyrannically uh, fits into that. So what we often fail to do is to oppose additions to government. So the inventing of new offices is also something we should fight. And so um, it is the position of this church that we only have two offices besides the voting member. So the voting member exercises authority in terms of electing officers and voting to see if a person is able to uh, uh, be cast out of the assembly. And then the, um, the other, but the other two authoritative roles, we have the deacon and we have the elder. And so there's no distinction of office. There's only one type of ordination between the elders. And so all of the elders are equal in office. Now, there's a biblical warrant for moderators. They're often translated as, as prince. You'll have a prince of an assembly. Okay? And you also have a, a biblical warrant for a clerk. You'll have a scribe. The word scribe is actually essentially referencing the office of a clerk of some court. And so the, the scribe, rather than the moderator, is actually the more powerful member of the assembly because they control the historical record. And so the historical record is the first witness is the clerk, and the second witness is the moderator. And so uh, the one who controls the writing of a narrative can have a lot of power for determining how the record is viewed and how the history of it is. And so the idea that the moderator is governing the actions as they're happening and the clerk is governing the recording of the actions, uh, those are the distinctive uh, roles that are, that are powerful besides that. So um, youth ministers, uh, you know, women's ministers, uh, all that kind of stuff, the, these, these efforts to, to have elements of government that are outside of that, they undermine the prescribed order that has been given in the scripture. And what you have is, as opposed to training husbands and fathers to be the pastors of their homes, what you have is a system that encourages abdication and undermines the growing of men to be fit for public office. And so if instead, you know, my, my if I say, hey, I want to individually engage with teaching your wives and children, right? And if you could not be there, that'd be great. This is what this is what the churches are doing broadly. And so the desire, it's a usurping of the heads of house and removing them. And broadly, the church has submitted to that, which is a sort of giving in in terms of allowing Satan to speak to Eve, right? It's this failure of the husbands to be involved in the guarding. And so that is a part of uh, the problem that has to be fought. And so the idea that you're seeking to engage with households, the men represent the households, the men can ask questions and object, the men have the power to remove officers by a vote of the majority, and that nobody can be put into office without the agreement of both the officers and the, and the men. Those are the guards on that. And then having the right of appeal 
to be able to go to a presbytery when it's formed. These are the safeguards in God's order. So the goal is to get to the full order quickly without compromising anything. Okay. Josiah. Um, so the goal is to get to a more full order more quickly. And so that more full, more full order is having all of those things in place rather than just some of them in place. And so you don't just break everything to make that happen. You try to do it in an orderly way, but you seek to put resources and effort into getting to that more full order. So any questions about that general topic before I move into more detail and move down the line? Mr. Schaefer? How does that apply to uh, a school and a teacher not abdicating yeah, so one's a voluntary association and the other one is a covenanted obligation, right? So um, you, can, you can, by voluntary agreement, hire people to do duties that you've got. It's my job to take care of my house. I can hire somebody. Yeah, right. So, and the authority, the check on that power is you can be fired. People can voluntarily leave the school whenever they want, right? There's, the voluntary association makes it so that it's different. Um, it's purely the exchange of services for goods. Um, and so the, if you are not aware of what's being taught to your children, um, and if you're not aware of the quality of teachers, I mean, think about the horror of just saying, yeah, you know, whoever the established secular government picks to hand my kid over to, like, that's fine. Just whatever. I'll we'll see what happens. All right. Um, yeah, so a parent can enter into a voluntary uh, contract and also be abdicating their role depends on what their thought process is. Yes. So it's not in itself sin. It can be by neglect, but it is, uh, it is sinful for the church to use the church resources, say, you have to tithe. You have to come to this assembly, and you have to submit to this government, and this government's going to generate these offices, and we're going to go after the people in your family, and you need to submit to that. And it would also be usurpation to say that you have to send your kids to a church school. Schools are not the purview of the church. Here. So in the Protestant Reformed Church, there was a controversy about this. You had, you had a pastor. So the Protestant Reformed Church required in their denomination for local churches to try to create schools, and then they would require the pastors to put the kids in the school. Well, in one case, there was a pastor that was removed from office because he was unwilling to do that because he thought there were problems with the school. He was homeschooling his kids, and he didn't have sufficient control over the school. And so he was like, I'm not going to do this. I think it's not in good enough order. We're going to homeschool them. And he was disciplined uh, in one of their synods for refusing to put his kid in their Christian school or remove from office. And so uh, that's, a, that's a stealing of jurisdiction. Um, you can hold people responsible for failing to discipline, but you don't get to control how they're going to, how they're going to teach. Go ahead, second. Okay, so it's your duty to judge the public doctrine, worship, and government of the church. Now, the public doctrine of the church is not everything I ever say. 
Okay? It's not everything any officer ever says. It's what occurs in the public teaching, and it's what is determined by the courts of the church. So if, for example, in private, I say, you know, God has a body, right, which is false. Uh, if I said that, but then I don't say it's false, right, and I'm not like, oh, I'm trying to be clever about the hypostatic union because God has a body in Christ and, you know, whatever. But if I'm instead I'm taking the Mormon doctrine that, you know, that, that each person of the Godhead has a physical body except for the Holy Spirit somehow, don't worry about it. And so I'm doing that and I don't repent of it, you should press charges against me. And if the church court then determines, yeah, totally legit, God the Father has a body, then that becomes the doctrine of the church. Or if the church court says, he may have said that, in fact, he did say that, the fact-finding of the court is that he did say it, but even though we disagree, that's his private opinion, and that's okay, and he can continue in the teaching office, that would be a finding of the court that would make you go, wow, they've lost the mark of discipline. Okay? So if the finding is we don't have sufficient evidence that he said that, and you personally heard it, you and I, we're having a private conversation, and I say some crazy heretical thing, you bring testimony against me, the court refuses to convict me because there's only one witness and I'm denying it. Lawful decision of the court. Not affirming the rightness of that doctrine, not affirming that I shouldn't be disciplined, saying there's insufficient evidence. And that's the way that is. Okay, and that would be illegitimate to leave over. You need to stay, and you know that if I'm a heretic, that's going to manifest itself in other ways, and you're looking for the next... You start to go, this guy's a wolf. And you're looking to try to get that caught. Okay? So if you personally become aware that I'm a wolf, it's your job to stick around and see that I get removed so you can protect the body that you're covenanted in. Now, once the court makes a determination, that's when you say, There's, you know, we don't have a higher court at this time. You, you, you protest. The court won't reverse itself. You get a public thing. You bring public accusation. The, the court says you're you know, rebellious and you're in the wrong and, and you say, uh, you know, well, no, this is wrong doctrine and you need to repent. And then we all curse each other and the people who are right, God will bless. The people who are wrong, God will curse. And the people who are right should start another church. Okay, that's it. It's the way it is. That's life. It's rough. We win. God makes us win. The people who are right will win. So, that's what has to happen. And so the marks of the church in terms of judging it, you are responsible to judge the doctrine. You're responsible to, to judge the worship. If there's worship that you think is done wrongly, that's public, it's important to bring it up. And there are safeguards. So this, the doctrine that's taught in worship is the opportunity to object with the questions we can come back another time, and there can be a recanting or repenting. Um, there's, in the worship itself, if, we, if you were asked to sing something that's not a psalm, don't sing it. And you object to it, and you seek to get that resolved and to get it to stop in the future. Um, if the Lord's Supper is administered wrongly, or the baptism is being done wrongly, you know, uh, I would encourage you to object on the spot. Um, the Prayers, and you, don't, you don't come to the table if you think it's being done wrongly, right? And you and you object to get it dealt with. But you know, with baptism or something like that, you know, if there's if you think something's happening and there's an unwitting failure or somebody's trying to pull something in or whatever, like object on the spot and stop it. Um, and then the um, with prayers, if you hear a prayer that's wrong, don't say amen. You participate in it when you say amen. You say amen, you're, you're joining the prayer, you're responsible for the prayer. Um, now, sometimes, for example, I'll pray something and then I, I say it wrongly or not very well and I'll kind of you know, correct myself. Okay, then you're not, that, that correction is also shared by everybody, right? So if you know, I accidentally start out by praying in a way that uh, sounds like I'm praying to, you know, an unclear, I'm not, it's not really clear that I'm praying to the Christian God, it's some sort of vague thing or whatever. And then it becomes more clear, and I pray in Christ's name. Okay, now you, you're saying, okay, this is a Christian prayer, right? So, but in general, you know, the general public, and somebody just makes some vague prayer to some, you know, to God or higher being or whatever, and they don't say it in the name of Christ, and it's not clear as the Trinitarian God, don't say amen, right? And if that ever happened here, God forbid, you don't say amen. 
<laughs> Mrs. Marsh. Now I forgot my question. Oh. <laughs> oh, uh, no. Oh. Um. Oh. Uh, so, are you taking literally that you must say in your prayer in the name of Jesus, or do you go like by the, the definition of catechism that what praying in the name of Jesus means is you know according to the and stuff? Like, do you believe you have to say in the name of Jesus? No. Um, so you can say the Lord's Prayer, for example, verbatim, and it would not have you know in the name of Jesus. It would be implicit. Um, right, but the uh, so you can have an implicit one, and so in your private prayers, in particular, I think you know you can just pray and not do it. But I make an effort whenever I'm in front, whenever I'm in a group that is uh, even my household, not because I think my household wouldn't get it, but because I'm trying to habituate the household into that. But so anytime I'm praying with other people, I explicitly say in the name of Christ. And if I'm with other people who are, um, you know who are professing Christians and uh, you know, I, I think I can say amen if it's a clear enough context that, that it's a Christian prayer. Um, but if I were in a general public setting, um, I would not uh, say amen without that. And um, yeah, so does that answer the question clearly enough? Yeah, and what's your um, thought on praying with someone, say, who's Jewish? Yeah, so whenever I do that, I make sure to explicitly say, in the name of Christ, and that is likely to offend them. Um, and, but I think that that's, I would, I would not let the other, I would not stay, for, I would not try to ask the other person to pray. I would assert, you know, try to assert control over the praying that's going to occur, and I would do it in the name of Christ explicitly. Um, and that's, yeah, right. <laughs> well, they're likely to understand that in that case, and that's good. So, okay. anything else about that? Like, um, I've often just wondered if um, it's sin for me to pray with people who uh, don't pray to God I think they have the, if you're the one praying, they have the choice of joining into the prayer or not. And they might be doing it vainly, but uh, that is, I don't, I don't think that's sin on your part, and you are discipling the nations by praying in their presence and having them affirm it, potentially. All right, so, so you're judging whether these marks of the church are being kept pure and entire. So they're not pure if they're being mixed with human traditions uh, or if they're being mixed with you know, demonic doctrines or the inventions of your own heart. And they are not entire if you're subtracting things out. And it's the duty of the church, when rebuked for not doing it pure or entire, to repent and failure to repent at any point. Failure to repent at any point is cause for covenant suit. And so you might choose to delay covenant suit about something because you're trying to deal with something more basic to bring reformation. But you, if you're aware of failings of the, of the church and it's not being addressed in terms of the public doctrine, worship, or government, then those failings, uh, they need to be addressed. And if something more basic is not being worked on, then that needs to be worked on and if there's non-repentance or not working on it, covenant suit is the appropriate thing to do. That's what going to Matthew 18 is. And public matters don't start privately. Public matters start publicly. I teach falsehood from the pulpit. You object publicly. And we're disputing about it publicly. And if it's not resolved, then you're taking it to the public court. And it'll be easy to find witnesses, whether they agree with you or not, by the way. The witnesses don't have to be on the side of the prosecution. They just have to have seen it. So if I teach a false doctrine, you know it's a false doctrine, you bring a charge, other people heard the doctrine, but they think it's true, you can bring the suit on the grounds of that doctrine having been taught, and then you can argue about whether it's true or not. I've had that used in the past where people say, well, nobody else agrees with you about that being wrong. It's like, 
it doesn't matter, it's there, and then let's go talk about whether it's wrong or not. Everybody agrees this was taught, so now either discipline me for opposing it, or discipline the person teaching. And that's the risk you're taking into your own hands. So, and you're trusting God to do that. It's a good work. We don't want to be unnecessarily creating fights or creating too many fights at the same time, but that's, I don't get to choose when you're offended by something you think is sin. You choose that. And so you're the one that has to hear my explanation of why we should move it down the line. And then that gets dealt with. And other people get to examine that and the council as a whole deals with that. Uh, That's the way it is. So I'm going to move to the semicolon unless there's anything else anyone wants to bring up. Can you write it down and we'll talk about it at home? Okay. So, moving on then. So, you're swearing to determine, you're you're swearing to judge this matter, and then you're swearing to submit unto the government of the church in all lawful exercises of church authority, and to refuse submission unto all unlawful exercises of church authority. Now, Lawful exercises of church authority are defined in the footnote. Lawful is the sense of legally valid, not lawful in the sense of sinless on the part of the one exercising authority. So, let's say I call, I make a motion and call for, and the council agrees, a call to worship at a different time than we normally have it, and the council determines as opposed to 10, We're going to do it at 9.45. And my motive was because I know you, particularly, would find 9.45 to be very difficult as opposed to 10 o'clock. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm going to stick it to you, and you're going to hate this. And that's a sinful motive on my part. But it's a lawful action, even though it's unlawful inwardly. It's, It's an externally valid thing. It's an exercise of authority that the church actually has. So... Even if it became known that my motive for the motion were that sinful thing, because I tell you personally, <laughs> then, but there's no other witnesses, so you can't get my sin dealt with, then it's still a lawful action and you're obligated to obey it. Okay. Now, unlawful, let's say, we say, you know what, we're going to have a regular call to worship every Saturday at 6 p.m. Well, actually, sorry, you might try to make an argument that the Sabbath begins then. Uh, we do it at uh, Saturday at 9 a.m. Right? We're going to have a call to worship on Saturday in the day. So I do that. You go, there's not a basis. There's not a lawful basis to require the assembly on a regular basis on a day other than the Sabbath. And so, um, so then you would not be obligated to obey that, and in fact, you would be obligated to protest it. Okay, But if we say, hey, we have cause for thanksgiving or we have cause for fasting, um, you should listen to that call. If you find there starts to be a pattern of seeming to call days of thanksgiving or days of fasting for trivial matters, you should start to bring that up and protest it. So these are the things that we have to deal with. And when we limit the church to its proper functions and avoid it taking on too many extra things, it allows us to actually care about guarding these hedges. If the church takes on too many functions and too much responsibility, then what happens is there's too much to fight over. And just like the federal government, with the federal government taking on way too much responsibility, the Congress abdicates its legislative authority and hands a bunch of it to administrative bureaucracies and gives lawmaking authority to the executive branch, and you end up with changing way too much and there's no way to actually deal with the legislation and everybody says what do you mean all legislative powers belong to congress and there shouldn't be laws passed by executive branches we could never keep up with all the things that we're doing if we did that and so this sounds impracticable because we're used to the church doing all these things that it shouldn't be doing and so as a result trying to fight over the stuff that matters and seek unity in that context sounds unworkable this is all the church should be doing Okay, so if you find that there's unlawful exercises of church authority or false doctrine, false worship, false government in some way, 
you are swearing that you're not just going to get up and leave. You're going to instead go through the requirements of biblical conflict resolution prior to separation from the body. If after two or three rebukes, which is a process of discussing the problem through and trying to make sure it's clear that the other party understands what you are saying, as far as it depends upon you, you've made the effort to, to make it clear what your objections are, and there's still an unwillingness to go through the process. For example, I refuse to, to, to allow the item to be put on the agenda, and, and Mr. Cordova conspires with me. And as, as clerk and moderator, we managed to never let it get on the agenda. At that point, hopefully other members would start to object and change who's moderator or clerk. Uh, but also, um, you, if you can't get a hearing in the court, you then are obligated to separate by public protest. And separating by public protest looks like saying, we have tried this, this has not worked, there's unrepentant sin here, and we're calling you to repent. And when that's failed, after multiple attempts, you leave and you kick the dust off your feet. And that kicking of dust is a symbol of curse. You're saying, I want this dust off my feet so bad, because that place is going to get struck by God with curse. And I don't want any of that curse dust on my feet. That's what you're saying. That's what it's a sign of, right? So that is what you are, you are obligated to go through that. And this, that's because we have a life or death obligation to each other. We are swearing to each other to be bound to each other under Christ and to share in things together, whether it's suffering or whether it's joy. Right? There's an obligation that we have to each other. That's what covenanting is. And so you follow through this process. And it's a terrifying thing to not follow through the process. And so I am aware of that. That is the level of obligation I understand that I have to give you due process and that the council has to give you due process. And that is the level of obligation you would have to follow due process. Matthew 18 gives you the escalation process. Acts 15 tells you how to deal with the public assembly of it. Much discussion, much debate. The same thing that gets said repeatedly. There's an effort to try to bring along. And after multiple times of trying to address and argue through, a decision gets made. And um, that is the system in Scripture. We should capture and systematize that into a constitution. And um, right now we have rulings and things that have been made but have not adopted a constitution uh, in full, and we want to do so and need to do so. Um, and so what we would have to do is look at, essentially, um, you know, we, we have the scripture text, and that's difficult because without having a document that lays things out that's been adopted in more full, then that's a much more difficult discussion. You have to pull the things together. So uh, a constitution is the same as a confession. It is a covenanted obligation to behave in this way. It's a rule of behavior, and it's systematizing of the doctrine. So the goal is to only have those things in our Constitution that have warrant from the Word of God and then circumstances that are judged upon that are necessary to the nature of human action and societies. Those are the only things that should be in the Constitution. So inside of that context, why why does all that exist? All of these things are safeguards so that we can guard the work that we should be doing together with zeal and knowledge. We want to preserve the peace, the prosperity of the church, the avoiding strife. We want to have purity in terms of avoiding idolatry or false doctrine and heresy or tyranny. And we are to pursue unity in the truth. We have unity and we need to pursue growing unity. And that's how we mature. And that's how the earth gets filled the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. So, comments, questions, objections? Mr. Marsh. Um, so, I have a question about um, uh, let's say someone would want to separate for practical reasons, say a job uh, out of town. So, desire was to move out of town. 
locally. Yeah, so the idea of moving um, to leave. So the questions, so we would go, okay, so we as a, as a church have the obligation of, of care for that person. And so then the question is, they want to leave, okay, is there a church that we can transfer them to in good conscience? There are very few of those. Yeah. So then it's, are they mature enough that we can commission them to plant a church while they go? If the answer is no to both, then is there a necessary duty that draws you away? Like, are your parents, like, in a health condition where you have to go care for them? And if you don't care for them, no one's going to be able to properly care for them. Okay, like, go, and hopefully we'll see you back when that necessary duty is over. And, you know, but the idea would be that the, this is a covenanted relationship, and it's not a, you don't resign, you don't leave without good cause. And that, that view is something that is not popular, um, and it has a deep level of commitment to it, and, um, so, does that answer the question? Yeah. I mean, another example would be uh, for health reasons or perceived health reasons, uh, where you easily prove that there were health concerns. So, sure. So, if somebody has a claim that's lawful and it's difficult to deal with it, you have to give way to the person who's making the claim for their care, right? So, if somebody somebody says that, then Okay, we are going to rely upon what you are saying. That you think this is necessary for you to keep the sixth commandment and caring for yourself. And so then, um, you know, we encourage you to um, seek to be mature to the point where you could plant a church there. Um, and we also uh, will pray for your recovery and return or success in planting there. And let us know if that happens, and you should have, you know, uh, let us know. We, let us know if you're seeking to join another church you know, that you find that you think is fit, because then we could also potentially establish relations with them. No, I think, so you have a similar situation with uh, the pilgrims, right, and, and sending a part of the church uh, going to Massachusetts. Um, so I think um, essentially the question would be, can you be commissioned to do that, right? So, so could the church commission and say, okay, so here's some families that want to leave because they're concerned about this. Okay, well, when you tactically retreat, retreat in good order, right? What happens to an army if it retreats and everybody retreats in a different direction? It's scattered, and after the retreat, there's no recovering. You know, it's just gone. But what if you instead, if you retreat and you retreat in order so that you're leaving together to go to a place? You know, that's, that's the more orderly way to do it. So then you've got a church you're planting that's relatively mature right then. So if there's a thought where a, a number of people think that we should do this thing, then... That, that group could be commissioned to go do that as a sister church. So the nugget of my question is, you wouldn't view them as abdicating their covenantal responsibility? If they were sent with the blessing of the church, no. And if they were leaving and they made an argument as to why they were failing in some more basic duty, uh, then we had to consider whether or not that applies broadly. I mean, right? So so it had to be a discussion. Like, So let's say you say... Um, you know, Phoenix has noxious gas in it, 
Staying in Phoenix is going to cause us all to die 20 years earlier than we would otherwise die. And so we need to, for the sake of the Sixth Commandment, leave. And the council doesn't agree with that. You try to present evidence to it. And then you go, well, I am persuaded of this, and I think I need to do this. If you have a duty and you have information to believe it, then you need to obey God rather than man. Um, if you, if, if the other party believes that your evidence is such that you are, you know, making an excuse, then they should rebuke you for that. If they think that you have a reasonable basis, even if they disagree, they should commend the desire to apply the law based upon the evidence that you're trying to deal with and seek to accommodate it. Okay. Yeah, so we have not, but back before we had separated from the RPCNA, uh, there was one that was called when the court was going to hear the case of uh, the one that turned into the adoption of, you know, falsely called gay marriage, right? So we were fat. We, there was a call of the church to fast about that case that the court would decide rightly that uh, we were in a terrible situation that the culture had reached that point. Um, and I thought that was a lawful and good cause and submitted to it. Um, I'm not sure if I would have moved to do that uh, unless someone brought it to my attention, but that's the one that I'm aware of publicly. We've had a public fast for uh, also before I was ordained, uh, the, the idea of the men fasting and laying on hands. Um, but it wasn't a call to everybody, including like the wives and everyone to, uh, to do that. So that was the closest that we've had was the, the fasting that was established there. And that's the, the common order. What's your opinion on what warrants a public health pass? For example, say if someone you know, had a diagnosis, or just anything in your yeah, so there's a, there's a tendency towards half-mast flag inflation, right? Um, everybody wants to seem really compassionate, and so it's like, let's mourn over this. What are we mourning for now? There's lots of flags that are half-mast. So uh, that tendency is, is a danger. So I think we have to be careful about that. Um, I think that basically things that affect the church uh, as a whole um, that are, you know, uh, that are things we are seeking to repent of, so it would be like the sins of the church, or it would be um, some sort of great uh, calamity that's coming upon the church. Otherwise, you know, individual households, I think, would be more fitting for the place for the calling of a fast. Uh, so if there's a particular member of a household fasting, I think for maybe for a public officer in the church, if there's some particular thing that would be appropriate to maybe call a fast for but I don't know like I I wouldn't like it like uh, <laughs> I think it's probably legitimate but uh, yeah so I don't know that's that's my best judgment on it this time I, I need to study the matter more and so far we haven't really called the public fast besides the one that's obviously obligatory with the ordination okay okay Logan Oh, I was just going to comment on that. That I believe was also for Hal Raver, um, an elder who was going to die soon. Most likely, or who was in relation to cancer. So they asked us to pray for both matters. Is that what you're saying? Okay. I don't remember that, but that could well be the case. But yeah. Um. No, I remember praying for him a good deal, so I, that could be. <laughs> um, okay. Great. Then, any other comments, questions, objections about Vound 10 and how it works? Okay. So then, If you think about, let's um, join back to the law because we didn't go through the whole law uh, last time. So if you've got a shorter catechism, pull it out and let's spend a little bit more time 
on that since you're swearing that that's a proper summary of the contents of the of the of the, of the Ten Commandments. Um, we talked about the first commandment and the second commandment, the third and the fourth, I think, in some detail. Um, so let's go to the fifth commandment, which is at question 63. Which is the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment is, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. What's required in the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment requires the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. What is forbidden in the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment forbids the neglecting of or doing anything against the honor and duty which belongs to everyone in their several places and relations. What is the reason annexed to the fifth commandment? The reason annexed to the fifth commandment is the promise of long life and prosperity as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good to all such as keep this commandment. Okay, so preserving honor and performing duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. So the covenant institutions, right, there's the individual, the household, the church, and the state. And so the idea that there's an obligation to understand who has what authority and to look to the word of God for that. God is the one who grants the authority. And so then we're looking, what in the law, what authority has he granted to those institutions? And we need to carefully guard those boundaries and respect the lawful authority given to each institution. And so that means not rebelling against lawful commands. And with the church, there's a special duty to have to protest in cases where there's unlawful authority with the state we have permission to pay tyrannical taxes uh, the question is it lawful to pay Caesar uh, not is it obligatory the question that was given to Jesus was is it lawful is it sin to pay him and the answer was that it was not sin to pay him and the taxation that we pay is tyrannically high you are not obligated morally to pay the level of taxation that the federal government demands of you. It is totally legitimate to say, you don't have this authority to not pay. The problem is that if you tell them honestly, because they require you to tell them how much you made, and so you say, I made this, I'm giving you 9.9%, because Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8 says it's a curse to have to pay 10%, so this is tyrannical, not a lawful authority. So here's 9.9% of what I made. You're now confessing that you've broken the law. And so you go, well, do I want to tell them that I'm not going to pay them? Or would I rather just give the guy who's asking for my wallet some of the money? Because that's what it is. So you can choose, in many cases, to go the extra mile. You can choose to accept a slap. You can choose to pay an unlawful tax because it's better for the goal to take that abuse. And so it's the same as paying, as, you know, when somebody's mugging you, handing them your wallet. And so we have an obligation to respect lawful authority. We have like an obligation to acknowledge the lawful limits. And we can choose some abuse for the sake of working through things and dealing with the fact that it would cost more uh, to deal with the problem. But in the church, we don't have the same luxury. So any comments or questions about the fifth commandment? Okay, so then sixth commandment. Sixth commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. It forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tends thereunto. Okay, so we have a duty to um, care for our health, to care for our neighbor's health. Um, that's manifested in the church in part by our uh, diaconal ministry and the oaths that we have that relate to that. Uh, there's obviously more ob obligation in general to the Sixth Commandment than just what the church does with its public authority. Um, and 
dominion work, you know, doing work and building wealth is one of the best ways to deal with that because you can pay for better care, better circumstances, and uh, do things to help people. And you have power that you can use to resist unlawful force. Any comments or questions about the Sixth Commandment before moving to the Seventh? Okay, Seventh Commandment. You should not commit adultery. It requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. It forbids all unchaste thought, words, and actions. So, there is a difference between um, breaking the seventh commandment in terms of sin and then there's divorceable seventh commandment breaches and there's criminal seventh commandment breaches. Criminal seventh commandment breaches are always divorceable and always sin. Uh, divorceable seventh commandment breaches are always sin. Well, not always crimes. And seventh commandment breaches that are sin are not always divorceable and not always criminal. And so we use the law of God to determine those. The ones that have penalties attached to them are the ones that are criminal. And um, the things that are divorceable are external actions. And the ones that are sin even are in the thought. right? And so that is the, the seventh commandment. So the seventh commandment touches upon being having control of all of our senses. Um, and so uh, gluttony, sin, not divorceable, not criminal. Breach of the seventh commandment. Those are examples of, of those kinds of things that fit into those categories. So anyways, um, comments, questions, objections about the seventh commandment. Okay. Eighth commandment. Don't steal. It requires the lawful procuring and furthering of the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. Forbids whatsoever does or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. So, we are obligated to seek to improve our station and our wealth and to help our neighbor to do that. And this supports financially the tithing process, having things to give, how you can be generous, how you can be hospitable, and um, makes so you have power to bless other people. And the church diaconal function is to help people to get into a place where their outward estate is in good order, to help to resolve short-term problems, but, you know, some people view the diaconal ministry as just providing with people with enough to avoid perishing. And I think the goal of the diaconal function is to get people out of a place where they need continued support. And so the goal is to use the capital that is under management to free the person out of bondage, free the person out of the place of hand-to-mouth, and to set them up. Now, to be able to provide for themselves and to have, be able to provide more than that. And so you look at slavery in the Old Testament. If somebody was enslaved to deal with paying for debt or as a penalty for crime to cover property that they stole or something like that, maximum time for that was, seven, was six years, the seventh year uh, being a release. And so you have a six-year maximum on that, the seven years of of uh, bankruptcy in America is based upon that. Um, and then the idea that you leave, they leave as a slave, they leave with capital. You send them away with property that they can use to provide for themselves and to start a trade. And so the idea of just, you know, people, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so you work and you provide help to make sure the person can be in a place where they can provide for themselves. That's what the diaconal ministry is to pursue. And so deacons need to be in good enough order that they can help somebody to figure out how to do dominion work to the point of being profitable. And that is the diaconal ministry is just help with that. There's some people, rare cases, that are in long-term need to, to get forever. 
And those people, as opposed to receiving charity loans, receive ongoing payments. And so Paul gives us a criteria. He says, well, okay, if you're going to have widows that are on this long-term receiving of money, they need to be over 60, and they need to meet all those criteria. Otherwise, they shouldn't be on the long-term reception of support. So he has a pretty high standard for the obligations to get ongoing support without an obligation to have to do that work. And they're supposed to still try to do useful service in terms of the context of the church. So any comments, questions, objections about the Eighth Commandment? Okay. Ninth Commandment. Ninth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The Ninth Commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. What's forbidden? Whatsoever is prejudicial to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. Okay, so you're trying to advance the truth. You're trying to advance each other's good name. And you're trying to deal with things in terms of justice. And so you say things that harm people's good name when you have a duty to do so. Right, so you say something negative about somebody else when you have a duty to do so. And so basically, is that person the one who did something wrong? Is the person you're talking to somebody that's you're taking to deal with the problem right now? Are you getting counsel from them? It's a dangerous and slippery slope. <laughs> Typically, if somebody's not an elder or your employer or your dad, you know, your mom, right? It's kind of why are you going to them? Have you gone to one of them first? And is there a good reason why you can't go to one of them? Because otherwise, are you just spreading the information and it's negative unnecessarily? Now, if it's a public matter, you can talk about it, okay? I teach some doctrine that's, that you think is wrong. You object to it in the public, so you're not like hiding the objection, and it's being talked about, and you have a separate conversation with somebody else. It's like, I don't see what your objection was about. It seems like you're making much ado about nothing. And you go, well, I think it's a pretty big deal because of X, Y, and Z. And so I think what was taught publicly is wrong. You are not slandering me. You are not gossiping. You are arguing about the public matter. If you don't bring it up to me, you just start talking about it to other people, then you are not doing it in good order, and you should bring it up to me, and you should have objected in public. If you didn't object in public on time, okay. When you are thinking, I should have done this, bring it up. The council meeting is a catch-all for where if you have a complaint, and you send it ahead of time, send it to myself and Mr. Cordova as the clerk. You say, here's this concern. I wanted to talk about it. It's a public matter. I want to deal with it publicly. And if there's not other stuff on the agenda that's more urgent, that's already there, then it will be dealt with then. If it's not dealt with then, it will be dealt with in a schedule, you'll be given a schedule for it to be dealt with. And if it's really urgent and you think it's destructive that we're not dealing with it, you know, protest that and, and make the case. So the idea that we seek to spread the truth, we're trying to undeceive people, we're seeking to avoid, we're seeking to advance each other's reputations and our own reputation, and we're seeking to deal with things that are negative in an orderly way Comments, questions, objections. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So what's required? Full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. What's forbidden? Discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that's his. Inordinate affections or grieving at something good for our neighbor or being happy about negative things happening to our neighbor, those are all things that are signs to us that our understanding of the good and the possession of it are something we need to examine. That, okay, there's some disbelief we have here, some wrong belief we've got here that makes it so that our desires and the things we value are disordered. And so discontentment reminds us to seek a deeper knowledge of God, 
we should be able to be content with the possession of God. And because we are sinners, we are not. And so instead of having contentment, we have discontentment. But we find increasing contentment as we grow in the knowledge of God and are able to deal with harder and harder things. Um, so, Tenth Commandment, comments, questions? Great. So, next time, what we'll do is talk about if there's any other questions that anybody has. So we've gone through the covenant, we've gone through the Shorter Catechism. So, now it's generally answering your questions, and I'm going to also push a little bit on the basic answers to truth, reality, and goodness. And because of your experience with Westminster Fellowship, I'm going to push in some particular ways and ask you to push back on me and anything that you found is, you, know, you go, this sounds like fideistic scripturalist nonsense. Okay, great, let's talk about that. And if I say this sounds like rationalistic empirical nonsense, then let's talk about that. And because of the more mature state that you guys are in, I think that that's to be valuable to use the time in. And if anybody else has any other concerns when they appear, uh, we can also deal with that. But for your particular case, that would be the kind of flexible part that I'd like to spend some time on and see if there's anything you have concerns about or, or whatever. So, sound good? Great. Um, then uh, everybody have a wonderful rest of your Sabbath. I'll see you in the evening service.